is the Electile Dysfunction Podcast with Ashton Cohen. Way more interesting than anything you're listening to on NPR. Probably less exciting than what you're watching on OnlyFans. Bruh. We're going to talk about the issues that really matter. Our country, our economy, the Fed, QE, GDP, BTC, NFTs, AOC, the CCP, Cardi B, Ow. Yeezy, Yellow Socks, Iran, Joe Biden's dementia, Come on, man. and probably sex robots. We stand for a free and open debate and exchange of ideas. And if you disagree with anything we talk about, you are a racist and no better than Hitler. What? Let's get started. Hello, everyone. This is the Electile Dysfunction Podcast with Ashton Cohen. I have with me today, Jason Sheftel. He is the host and a, of the China Unraveled Podcast and a writer. And we're going to be discussing China today. And all the things that doesn't often get covered by the media, the, the issues they have in terms of demographics and energy and food scarcity problems and how China's risen to where it is today and where it's headed. So Jason, thank you so much uh, for being with me today. Thanks, Ashton. I'm glad to be on. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's going to be a fascinating discussion. Um, I want to first start off with what I just referenced, which is let's start with the demographics of China because that's something that's often you know, not given the attention that, that it should get. Uh, obviously, they had the one China policy. They scrapped that. They made it into two children. And now, looks recently, they announced that they're going to be allowing, I think, up to three children, if I'm not mistaken. And that's to sort of combat a demographic crisis that they seem to be having, uh, and that's projected to get worse. So could you talk to us a bit about what's going on with China's, its demographics, how it's shaping their policies and where it's going to lead to? Yeah, sure. So you're definitely right. It's definitely heading in a very bad direction. But to give people context, I'm going to bring this sort of way back. And mm -hmm. you referenced food scarcity. So how does any country get the population that it has, right? How does any country get, how does Germany get like 80 million? How do you get that number, right? How does the US get to 330? Well, it actually comes back to agriculture. The function of how much food, it's kind of obvious, right? How much food you can make in a certain area, it's related to the agricultural land, sort of produce you make, et cetera. And from there you get the number of people you, you can sort of sustain right. on any given piece of land. And so India and China, historically, the reason they were so large for so long, and just in terms of population, they've really, they have a large agricultural sort of zone that they can use. And in Chinese history, agriculture is very volatile. That's one way to think about it. The main northern basin in China is called the North China Plain. And that region has very volatile sort of uh, rain, moisture, and food cycles. So we just saw like a massive, massive flooding in the, the western part of the North China Plain. They basically got a year's worth of rain in one day. It's catastrophic wow. flooding, the sort of thing you don't see almost anywhere else on earth. It, it's some of the most Two, both of the worst natural disasters in history that aren't flood that aren't plagues are no, are yellow are floods of the Yellow River. They're absolutely mm -hmm. catastrophic. They're they're nothing's really like them on Earth. And well, that makes it kind of hard to get your food system oriented correctly, right? right? That's one way to think about it. And China has this boom and bust cycle with its population. They go, they do really well. Everything's going great. They're building it all up. They get it irrigated, all this land. It's all going great. And then you, typically you get a massive flood, and then it would all break down. You get waves of migration, cholera, famine, disease, and it would just, it would chaos, often causing the, the collapse of whatever empire happened to be in existence. But starting in the 1940s and 50s, things changed. You got new technologies, you got ste like steel, cement, concrete, real dams. You could build all sorts of new things China had never been able, been able to do before. Mm -hmm. So that, that's kind of what happened. So that really stabilized and expanded the food production in China more, and you also got fertilizers later on. And that really, big boom, big, really good thing for China. But at the same time- Sorry, this was the 40s and 50s? 
So after the, the communist revolution in 1949. In right, the, 50, the Great Leap Forward and all that. Ooh, no. So no. this is, uh, this, don't consider this like a nameplate move. This was just a general oh. function of having more modern material. So that would okay. involve building small dams all around the country and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. The actual Great Leap Forward was a disaster. Right, right. That's what so, I was wondering. Yeah, yeah. So that's like a failed, um, yeah, failed industrialization thing totally. Totally, totally bonkers. But this is just a general thing. They were able to use basic modern technology. They used to build dams out of like bamboo and some sticks and stuff, and it would just like emulsify over time. So it would just constantly need. Anyway, we don't mm -hmm. get into that too much. But basically, what happened starting in the 50s, Mao actually had a program to basically breed for the motherland, is a way to think about it. He was worried that the US was going to start nuking everything in China. Uh, this is from yeah. 1950s early Cold War policy. This is with the Korean War. And there was actually basically, a, you know, a, expansion sort of a demographic expansion policy which is actually very typical with new chinese states the new empire emperor or mao comes in and they basically want to expand the population they want to increase the labor force they want to have more tools at their disposal to do all their imperial right. project stuff but what happened with mao is that after that baby boom in the 1950s the the chinese state hit a major in, i gotta even know how to say it's like an inflection point a real problem point late 1960s and then through the 1970s so what was basically happening is China, China's uh, demography was going out of control. Fertilizer, not fertilizers, but all these new technologies and inputs were making, were just creating an enormous population. People, there's no contraceptive, there was nothing. And right. so what basically what happened in the late 1970s, about around when the US sort of had a rapprochement with, with China, China was in dire straits. And basically this is what would have happened. If they had not, if they had continued to try and do like, like you said, the Great Leap Forward, this bizarre attempt at in de like industrialization in the backyard, Mm -hmm. sort of thing if they right. continue to do that if they continue to not have any contraceptive policies or any uh, demographic controls and they had never gained access to modern chemicals and fertilizers from the united states china would have seen basically population corrections the side like, like the world had never seen their their food was absolutely hitting a point where, where the population was hitting a point where the food could not match and they would right. that would have been like it was the sort of thing that would have made malthus curl into a ball into the fetal position to try and avoid mm -hmm. right and so this is where you get the one-child policy. I am not defending the one-child policy. It's barbaric. It basically led to the, the abortion of something like 300 million people right, right, right. around the population of the United mm -hmm. States. And yeah, that, that was absolutely insane. And it was a very barbaric policy on the ground as well. But what we're seeing now are the, I don't know, the bitter fruit of that policy. So the, uh, the one-child policy allowed China to develop in a way it probably would have been able to otherwise. Because the more people you have, the more problems you have. In a lot of ways, you have to feed, clothe, house, right. educate, all that. Um, but what this did is basically throughout the late 80s, 90s, into the 2000s, China had a demographic dividend. So imagine the largest workforce in human history that's all young, healthy, um, has, doesn't need any health care, doesn't right. need any pensions and any right. social security. It, it's, it's huge. It was, I mean, I mean, a lot of reasons why the labor costs were low, but really cheap young workers is a big one. Of course. And well, that ended around 10, 12 years ago. Well, 13, 14 years ago now. And Ever since, China's been tr trying to figure out what on earth they're going to do because mm -hmm. they now have, right, like you referenced, it was a one-child policy, then they actually expanded to the two-child policy, and now they have a maximum of three children per person. But the, this, the ship is, this are, has already sailed. Right. No country has ever, no modern, advanced, industrial nation has ever been able to correct a demographic uh, contraction like we're seeing. Mm -hmm. And no country has ever done it anywhere near the scale China has. And there's some basic reasons. I mean, a big reason why this is so difficult is that a lot of it relates to urban space, to, I mean, female employment, to mm -hmm. female priorities, and mm -hmm. all of these things that you can't correct with very bare bones. Economic. Right. And it's a general trend throughout the entire world as well. The entire world. Yeah. So, yeah. Especially with Europe and America's, I think, seems to be the best of the major countries. Although um, that's getting pretty bad too. The yeah. And it's, it's, yeah. 
going to becoming issues here. Tiny number right. of children. Right. The question I was like, I encourage people to ask is like, forget like 2.1 children. That is a bogus, bizarre economic nonsense, right? It's a little, mm -hmm. you don't you can't have it. You get, you, you know, single digits, you get one, two, or three. Ask how many people you know that are having three children or more. Right, That's of course. That's the question yeah. where you yeah. see it. Like, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, not many. <laughs> not yeah. many, right? Yeah. Particularly with uh, spaces getting more confined. I'm sure it's the same issue with the with many of the cities in China where you, you have a limited amount of space by which you can have an apartment and it's, it's yeah. your combined spaces. You can't have like these uh, rolling houses like in Texas or something, right? Yeah, so Seoul, no. South, I mean, South Korea is the worst, has the worst mm -hmm. demography on earth. And it's exactly what you said. So many people are, huge percentage of the population is in Seoul and they're in tiny, tiny, tiny apartments. Right. You can't have three kids in mm -hmm. a tiny apartment. It's yeah, almost of course. impossible. Same thing in Japan and Hong Kong, yep. Yeah. So yeah, China's, and if you go to China, they have a huge number of cookie cutter industrial cities with mm -hmm. tiny, massive apartments, and it's extremely difficult. Um, and this is, I mean, the demographic problem seeps into almost every area of life, whether it's rural workers, whether it's the, uh, the agricultural sector, whether it's the attempt to continue to staff large manufacturing hubs in the, su the southern coast, it just goes on and on. Whether you, and in everything, including all the stuff we mentioned, a large population means you have to house, clothe, you know, you know, feed all these kind of people. But if you're actually able to do so, it gives you a big boost. So U.S. economic growth since 1970, since then, it's been about half of it has come from population growth. Mm -hmm. And once China got going, it was there's a similar dynamic, at least in the sense of fulfilling, filling the needs of all of its people. Right. Now, what if you have to build less homes every year? And then you need less products. And mm -hmm. it just, it's a, a downward spiral. But it's also an issue too, with respect to their entire economies based on exports. So they are going to have less people who are, first of all, they're going to, it's exports and consumption, right? So there, there's going to be less people to consume the manufactured Chinese goods just by nature of less kids and a, a, a population that's swindling in size. And then on top of that, the rest of the world's having less kids. So then, and the populations are getting older, the ones who are, who are around. So then you have less people consuming their stuff as well. And that sort of reverberates into making their economy weaker as well, right? Yeah, so the, the Chinese economy, like you said, the export sector is a major place where they get hard currency. It's, it's one of the most dynamic, three or, one of three or four of the most dynamic parts of the Chinese economy. Mm -hmm. And yeah, not only are there going to be four, fewer foreign consumers all around the world, there's also going to be, it's going to be much harder to access these foreign markets. I mean, so we're mm -hmm. now seeing like basically buy American, buy Chinese, buy European uh, right. stuff all over the world. Well, mm -hmm. that means goodbye global export markets right, to China. Right. It's extremely difficult. And the, I mean, the major way that China's been trying to deal with this is to move to, like you said, more of a consumption-based economy. But consumption is, is also very tied in with these demographic trends, right? right. If you have 45-year-olds who don't have any kids and they're just saving up nest eggs, where's your consumption? Yeah, exactly. There is none. Right. So huge problem. It's, it's, and it's none of it's, I mean, just to be blunt, like there's, it's actually much easier to prevent people from having children. Of course, yeah. Because mm -hmm. you can't make someone care for you someone. You can't make someone, exactly. Years. Right, right, right. You, you, you can't make that. someone have kids, yeah. It's real tough. So yeah. that's definitely the, the main thing. I think just for your audience, so that knowing the background about demography and food supply, it seems very in the background. Oh, that's so basic. It's so obvious. It doesn't matter. But these things really matter. Mm -hmm. And the, the stability of the Chinese agricultural system is worrisome to say the least. And it's, there's another thing, just the entire Chinese agricultural workforce is old, 60, roughly 60 year old people. And there's right, no right. one to replace them. Mm -hmm. And you're not going to get someone to move back to the fields after they've lived in the city. And that's, you know what I mean? It's, it right. goes against the entire notion of progress in modern mm -hmm. China. So, so they're so old largely because China emphasized bringing these people out of the rural villages where they're doing agriculture, putting them into factories, and then hopefully educating yes. them as well. And so now the only people sort of left behind are the, or are the ones who you know, came from a different era 
raised into that, and now you can't really go backwards, right? No one's going to go back to these rural villages after they're used to living in places like Beijing or um, you know, Shanghai, et cetera. Yeah, so the, a big, the workforce, that massive Chinese workforce that we were talking about, it mostly came from the rural, I mean, everything in China was rural like 30 years right. ago. It was, it, was a, it was a, what would they call it, the um, rural basically like a rural transition. You're basically moving from an, a rural to an urban, the rural to urban transition. We're basically moving these people into cities. And at the start, they're just moving there to work in factories. They're starting to, I mean, do the basic manufacturing stuff. And you, I mean, the reason they were able to do this originally is because the agricultural productivity and efficiency of Chinese agriculture basically went up because they had fertilizers. Chinese agriculture is terribly, terribly, terribly inefficient. Mm-hmm. The thing that makes it work all, the only reason it works is because you have enormous amounts of agricultural industrial chemicals that are juicing. Like basically the Chinese countryside is juiced with steroids and that's how you produce a lot of food. Um, and that is why you were able to have less workers. Like you said, like, a, like worse, less people in the fields. Right. But the, yeah, you're not going to be able to get those guys to come back. Although they are, you're not, it's just a huge challenge. I mean, right. the, if you do that, you start to mess with the, the manufacturing sector. I mean, they want to automate a lot of these things. They want to replace a lot of these workers with automated systems. But I mean, there's capital costs. There's, I mean, total management transformations, technological transfers, all this needs to happen. And this is not how these, a lot of these manufacturing, old school manufacturing stuff in China was done, right? I'm not talking about the major tech companies. Those are advanced. Those are modern. But to try to do this en masse for, for the entire Chinese manufacturing sector is nay impossible, uh, especially if you can use those same automated processes in other countries that are now reticent to let the next wave of manufacturing also occur in China right, based right. on what happened from you know, the last wave. One of the things you mentioned, which is really interesting, was that China has less arable land per capita than Saudi Arabia. Is that yeah. right? That's, that's an Correct. insane stat. I mean, Saudi Arabia is a desert. Why yeah, they have per- such few, why they have such little arable lands? Because all the mountains and mm. they've destroy their local environment why they have such because they're about the size of america and america has obviously i think what the most arable land in the world um yeah. next to india but they, they have basically what you said seven percent uh they're 20 percent of the world's population they have about seven percent of the arable yeah, land it's around 21 percent and seven 21 20 and seven mm-hmm. and the, the the key thing in that stat is per capita it's right. this huge so basically since the 1500s china has been increasingly overpopulated Mm-hmm. The reason why is actually the remember the Colombian exchange where you got like potatoes going to Europe and you know tomatoes all that kind of stuff. Right, right. Forth. Well, that also went to China at the same right. time, and it particularly bought it brought potatoes, it brought uh, yams, it brought stuff like that, and that actually did a huge boost to Chinese agriculture. It took a lot of marginal land that originally you couldn't grow anything in, and mm-hmm. it made it productive, and that made a huge boost to Chinese the population basically mm-hmm. in the last five hundred years. And what that has done is strained the entire uh, Chinese landmass basically mm-hmm. with, with, with the people because like you said there are most of china is not good for agriculture it is deserts basins plateaus all that i mean it, it's, mm-hmm. it's junk land i mean basically the, right. the good land that you can farm on in china is roughly the size of colombia state of colombia and south america oh okay that's about the size yeah. for the good land that's the non per capita sort of thing right, 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 right. in terms of states but again you also mentioned something really important all this industrialization all of this uh agrochemical infused steroiding of the countryside, all this is creating massive, massive problems. Basically, you've paved up, China's paved over a lot of its land. A good way to think about it is imagine if in America, the, the New York, the whole Boston, New York megalopolis, that whole boss wash corridor, right. imagine if that was sitting on top of the Midwest. 
right, right. every time you expanded the mm -hmm. cities you were getting rid of a lot of the best land mm -hmm. that is exactly what's happening right. it has happened already in china they've paved over most of their great land yeah so they don't have a midwest basically right they, they have not yeah. no the, the, again once again the north china plain no. and the yangtze mm -hmm. basin are the two main areas but these are just in heavily heavily populated Right, like you said, right. like that's where you want to live in China. So that huge population, those 1.4 billion people, they're all stuffed into this region. So you're you're really like it's really, really mm -hmm. funny. You can go on Google Earth, Google Maps, and just go into China, go like go somewhere south of Beijing, just go down a little bit and just zoom in and you will see, you know, farmland and then every like a couple yeah. meters, you'll see little yeah. patches of little villages. Like it's yeah. just it's crazy. Yeah. If you go to the Midwest, you'll see like, you know, cities. You don't right, see right, right, right. little thing. It's it's mind boggling because again, it's just it's the scale. The thing with the thing with China that makes everything so difficult is scale. Certain things scale well, but most things don't when it comes to countries, right? Mm -hmm. This is why India is perennially poor. A lot, they never managed to get the, the sort of accelerance together like China did at that key period when you could have done it. Now that's gone. It's not right, gonna happen. Right. And yeah. to do it with so many people is just, and every time, every year, more people are in India, it becomes more difficult. So it's a major challenge. And China should be credited for like what it's managed to accomplish. Nobody thought they would get this far right, in the right, 1990s. Nobody got it's, nobody thought. Um, yeah, probably the most unprecedented increase in uh, human capital and livelihood and and uh, coming out of poverty in world history. Oh, for sure. And I mean, something yeah. like 75% of all of the great gains in sort of modern human rights, political, and I have human rights, but like political advancement, economic right. increase, all of this is 75% mm -hmm. of it comes from China. Yeah, Just that's right. removing the poverty in China is enormous. Unbelievable. Yeah. My favorite thing when, when you speak to some people in China, just talking about scale, is uh, you'll say, like, oh, where are you from? Like, oh, I'm from a small town of 10 million people. <laughs> yeah. Enormous. You know, it's, it's, just, it's insane, the scale, right? I mean, none of us ever heard of Wuhan. Um, you know, 99% of people haven't before, before this whole uh, pandemic. And that's, what, like 10 million people or something as well? Yeah. Dude, Wuhan's it's enormous. Huge it's actually a very, very, like a very advanced city. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's a, there's so many cities like that. Yeah, so the China built something like over 600 major cities in the last yeah, three, unbelievable. three years. Unbelievable. Enormous. I think over 100 have over a million people. So it's wild. How are they going to they gonna get the energy to, to basically provide for these cities, right? Because China has, despite being one of the biggest nations on earth, the top five, they are actually pretty, pretty destitute when it comes to energy resources relative to their size. Yeah. And they're going to have to get those from other places. So how are they going to deal with that? What's that situation looking like for them? Well, it's a dilemma. So somewhere in the early 2000s, uh, one of the Chinese prime ministers or presidents called um, called this problem the Malacca Dilemma. Right, right. Basically- There's Hu Jintao. Hu Jintao, oh. yeah. And Hu Jintao basically said, uh, the only place we can get this oil or hydrocarbons right. basically yeah. is from the Middle East. Right. And so the only way it gets there is yeah. if it rolls all the way through Southeast Asia, past mm -hmm. India, all that. And that means you have to have pretty good relations with all of those countries. Yeah. Well, let's right. talk for a second because I want to put the I want to put the map up uh, for the viewers when this comes. The Malacca Strait, it's unbelievable. It's like so the narrowest point is like 1.7 miles. It's a tiny, tiny little strait in between like Singapore and Malaysia, and almost all of China's energy has to come through this little thing because of Indonesia scattered with all the islands, so you can't go around those. You have to all the energy they get, like 80% of it, has to come through this tiny little strait, which is probably like the the biggest. I would say in terms of fragility from a geopolitical context is I, I can't think of something that's, that's worse, right? So it would be incredibly easy for the United States or anyone else to be able to shut that straight off. It's tiny. And then China's screwed. 80% of their energy comes from there. 
yeah, it's, it's the choke point, right? Yeah. It's the choke point for Chinese energy supplies. And they've known that for over 20 years. The, the what to do about it, though, is pretty, it's kind of hard to figure that out. So mm-hmm. a lot of things related to the South China Sea are also related to this. So everything China does in the South China Sea is not only focused on the Malacca Strait, but also controlling this entire region. So right. basically, what if you could control everything up to the Malacca Strait, right? That puts mm-hmm. you in a much better position. Right. And also, there's also hydrocarbon exploration you can do you know, in the South China Sea. Internally? So adds yeah, you could do basically offshore oil drilling, stuff like that. In the I see, I see. Okay. They have all these islands that are both military bases and also energy extraction. If They, they, they built there. some of these islands too, is that right? Yeah, in the South China Sea? And, and that's, that's largely for this, this, to avoid this problem that you're discussing, right? The Malacca Strait problem where they can have enough of a presence around there so that they can get their oil and their energy and their goods into, into the country um, without, you know, facing terrible amount of blowback or having at least a presence there to be able to deal with whatever comes. Yeah. So China's, one of its main problems is that its coastline is, it's hemmed in by countries all the way down. So you go starting up North, you got Korea just right, right there across from Beijing. Then you get Japan where someone like Nagasaki is about uh, online with Shanghai and you got to go down there and you have Taiwan, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And then you have the Philippines and it's just on and on and on. And, and, then Vietnam, you the and, Vietnam. Yeah. and none and of these so, countries like them very much either, right? <laughs> none of them like it, but the yeah. thing the South China Sea would give them is some breathing space, basically. Mm-hmm. It gives you some, you know, so you look at the United States, there's nothing from California all the way to Hawaii, Midwest, right, there's nothing right. there, yep. right? There's no Germany, or there's no Japan dangling off the coast mm-hmm. or Britain off the East coast, right? It's mm-hmm. a big thing. And it gives you a lot of freedom. China has no maritime freedom anywhere in any direction. And that's really a problem. Well, it's a problem for the last thousand years of Chinese history, but it's also really a problem, particularly if you're trying to be a modern advanced industrial nation where everything runs on energy. Right. So like you said, China has basically been tapping out its oil reserves. It, mm-hmm. The thing that China really has, it doesn't have, it has some gas, it has some shale gas, but it's extremely difficult to extract. It's also in Southern China, which is mercilessly hilly and rough, mm-hmm. just, just to oh. build the infrastructure. Like uh, shale oil has all these like feeder lines. You basically need pipelines right. kind of go crisscrossing in every direction. And so West Texas, great place to do that. There's nothing there. Uh, trying right. to do that in Southern China is, uh, again, nay impossible. It's just mm-hmm. mountains. That was my next question. I was, was going to ask why don't they just, why don't they frack? But it's, it's because of the, the natural topography makes it very difficult to do. Yeah, and then underground, it's also more difficult shale formations. I see, more I complex. see. So you get above ground and below ground. It's also enormous amount of money. So mm-hmm. they, they had plans to try and do a shale thing. They were, they were trying to hit some numbers for last year, but they're scaling it way back. They don't plan to be able to rely on that. What kind of happened in the U.S. was, was pretty unique. It doesn't look like it's going to happen in a the similar way in many other places. So China's really stuck with coal. China uses more coal than the rest of the world combined. Wow. And coal is really... Coal is really what made China possible. Like mm-hmm. all these manufacturing industries that we were talking about. I mean, a big one these days is solar panels. Solar right. panels, you have to do, you have to refine silicon into polysilicon. That takes a lot of energy. Mm-hmm. And so they have a huge string of coal plants in Xinjiang and Inner right. Mongolia. To make renewable energy. Yeah, to make yeah, yeah. renewable energy. And the electric batteries as well, right? Correct. Yeah. yeah. Well, th- there's yeah. a whole chain for that. But yeah, anything, and the great thing about coal is that it's cheap. It's right, so right. cheap. You have so much. It's everywhere. Basically, all around the North China Plain, west and north, it's just ringed by coal. Mm-hmm. And most of the rail lines in northern China actually are just all about bringing coal into the major industrial areas. And what coal lets you do is, is, is expand this, this, this massive industrial base like we've never seen before. Mm-hmm. That's, what, that's what it did. Right. The problem is that originally, 
originally China thought global warming was just a hoax by the West to try and stymie its rise, right? Mm -hmm. Total, total BS. Like this is just the West trying to keep us down. And then they realized that their entire population is disturbed by the level of environmental chaos and destruction all around them. So now they really embraced it, at least rhetorically. But weaning China off of coal, like how, how on earth do you do this? And the, the, the renewable energy problem, everyone talks about renewable energy in China. Right. It's very impressive. But the solar panels China makes go to the rest of the world. This is an export industry. We're talking about hard mm -hmm. currency. It's, it's not about, I mean, they do go to China as well. But China, again, is a great place. You know, you and I were both in LA. One of the best places on earth to do solar panels is the Mojave Desert. It is a, right. it, it's like basically the Sahara Desert in terms of solar radiation. And it's right next to a major population center. You just don't see that almost anywhere. And it's basically nowhere in China. So where you do see a lot of solar panels in China is Xinjiang, Western China, places where you need massive, massive transmission lines to bring it to the rest of the country. China's actually innovating and creating, I mean, these, these enormous like ultra high frequency direct current transmission lines. They're trying to, they're trying to, you know, to bring all of this energy in direct, direct current. So it's all in one direction. Just, just from the into, solar, from the solar panels. From solar panels, yeah, from, from okay. wind and solar. So wind is the same thing. Most of the yeah. wind is in the, the Western de deserts. Where right, the right, right, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's, it's not just, a terribly efficient way to get energy anyways. Wind. No, I mean, well, yeah. wind, you know, they're, they're expanding it. It's got a threshold, but wind turbines are getting pretty big. And you can do, if you, if you do use batteries and you can work things out, you can make it pretty efficient. Um, you can the make batteries are so expensive and you the, the, putting up the turbines is so expensive and then transmitting them across is so expensive and then you can't, uh, the battery capabilities right now are so expensive and, and limited and then you have to clear out entire fields, right? So what, what, what do they get from, from solar and wind to combine? Like a couple percent right now? Other energy needs? China. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, no, it's tiny. I mean, that's again, like you said, with agriculture, it's the scale. China right. uses 50% more energy than the United States. Oh, more wow. than 50 now. Like we're talking huge numbers. Mm -hmm. It's like to, to move the needle is solar panels are not moving the, the needle in right. de for decades. It's too course, yeah, much yeah. energy, like the scale of how much you'd have to build out. And the thing about energy is that you have to integrate it all into the system. And so, like I was saying, these, these massive transmission lines you want to bring from Western China, these create enormous uh, energy reliability challenges, which is some right. of what you were referencing. If you want to do this in, in large scale all across China, you're going to see you're going to, I mean, to, to make that work is going to take a very long time because otherwise you'd see massive blackouts. Mm -hmm. There's no other way. You get, you get weird, you get weird wind things, you get weird, uh, you know, cloudy days, you right. get extra energy use, you get hot days. These, all these factors. So basically, all, like we were talking about geography earlier and the geography in Southern China, all this, when you're using things that are renewable and using the sun, using the wind, every little geographic and climatic element can come together to cause a problem. Every little thing matters. How much sun is there today? How right. much is, all these things. So, it creates challenges. I think it could be useful. The, the key to all this is batteries. Uh, mm -hmm. If you can get batteries that store for days, you know, that can, that can, that can release their energy for many days. You know, there's, there's some research in iron batteries. They basically, they basically be able to release the charge for like 10 days straight. So it'd give you a continuous rush onto the grid. You know, you could do things and there's a lot of innovation in but batteries. With right those, you have to, you have to, you have to back up the, the solar and, and the wind with something like natural gas or oil yeah. or, yeah. yeah so Personally, for China, I think China's best bet is nuclear energy. Right. That's uh, what I was about to ask. Well, why haven't they gone energy. all in on nuclear? So they are going all in, but nuclear is a very challenging industry because it is so capital intensive. Mm -hmm. So that's just like the you know the the one in the big one in in England. It's like twenty billion dollars for a single plant, right? Right. And you just basically have no economies of scale. They're like individual baroque, you know, energy facilities you build, you know, to spec each time. So they're just billions of dollars. Right. And right. Right. It's just, it's very hard to get economies of scale. And if you mess this up, you get a Fukushima, you get something like that. It could set back this whole, pro this whole process for decades. Like China knows 
there was actually just recently a problem in a, in a plant in southern China, and it was using new technology with France, and it became a bit of a you know problem because there's basically a worry like is this thing about to melt down? And nuclear just has has a massive stigma around it in the United States from right. the Mile Island. And personally, I think we should okay. for sure be innovating and advancing nuclear technology, Absolutely. making it, nuclear. Make it, mm-hmm. make it, make it safer, uh, make it smaller if you want as well to make it, you know, smaller scale for smaller right. regions, do anything to create economies of scale. Uh, I think it's, it's extremely important. And again, the, there are also new challenges coming. So uh, nuclear needs a lot of water. So they're typically along the coast. That's why mm-hmm. you see things right. like California. That's why we have it right near San Diego, that one that's, that's down now. That's why Fukushima, there's all these things and they do need to improve this stuff, but the, there's really just not enough innovation. I mean, it looks like the next wave of new nuclear is coming maybe around 2030. Okay. Sucks. Mm-hmm. So, so China's kind of, uh, well, out of luck on that one. Yeah. You don't, you don't want to be, you don't want to be expanding some massive build out of stuff that might be obsolete, possibly more dangerous, pops, you know, possibly mm-hmm. make you look like a fool. So yeah. So, but I, that's, that was sort of my conclusion as well. Their best bet for sure is nuclear. I think that they use primary solar is an export industry. I think people should really keep that in mind. It's, yeah, I think something like 80% of the panels installed in the U.S. come from China. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And China needs these export industries. They really do. They need yeah. a hard currency. So you referenced earlier the fact that China has all these cities. And it's not just energy that they need. They actually need, I mean, cement, asphalt. So there's many things they do in China. So steel, you do all this um, manufacturing and sort of uh, refining and processing in China. But right. almost ver- without, you know, without exception, all of these require enormous amounts of energy, right? So if you're doing all this steel production, well, you're paying for it with your energy imports. That's kind of how it goes. But there's also things like asphalt, you know, semiconductors, all these things, you still need to keep all these cities sustained and going. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. To do that is, is really changing the, the financial and currency profile in China. So China's now a major importer of a, a huge swath of, of products, like uh, of, of products and, and goods. It's, it's, it's wild. We, we still think of China as an exporter. Yeah, right, right. So where are they importing? What's, what's, what are the biggest things they're importing? From everywhere. I mean, so China, oh, I mean, a bunch of minerals, a bunch of metals, a bunch mm-hmm. of chemicals, a bunch of... Uh, Semiconductors are the big one that's in the news now because it's, it's so important, but almost everything. I mean, remember, China has been a major uh, civilization for a very long time. So a lot of like old resources that we've used for a long time can be are relatively tapped out. The U.S. didn't have that. And then they've just done an industrial expansion like the world has never seen. Right, so right. You're, you're, you're really at it. What they want to do is a lot of what they try to do is diversify as well. So it's not always that there's a particular crunch with say like copper in China, but you want, you don't want to deplete. You don't want to just go for broke on all of your resources when you can get it cheaper elsewhere and sort of mm-hmm, slow mm-hmm. the curve and, you know, soften the curve. So that's what they're trying to do, but it's really impacting the, the, the current account in China. So basically balance of imports and exports. And a lot of that relates to how many dollars are coming in, you end up going out. And historically it's been dollars coming in. <laughs> Dollars right. coming in, we, yeah. we leverage those dollars, we invest in all this infrastructure, mm-hmm. boom, 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 this is how we expand, this is how we, we build out, you know, export-oriented industrialization is what it's been called since Japan first did it in the 1950s and 60s, and that's, that's what China did on a way crazier scale, but once you start importing at, at the scale they're doing, things change, and China actually is a, is a net, the current account is red, so all the stuff they have to buy is starting to balance out, I mean, forget, oh. the pande- forget the, ban- the mm-hmm. pandemic for a minute, that mm-hmm. changed things the last two years, yeah. but all of this is impacting just the basic financial picture in China. So when you see, starting in 2015, massive capital controls coming into China, uh, coming uh, down in China, preventing any any purchases over a billion dollars for major Chinese companies, preventing mm-hmm. Chinese individuals from you know taking more than 50 grand out of the country, et cetera, et cetera, down the line, you're seeing a country that is trying to keep capital in China mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because it needs it there. 
yeah. you can't have individuals and businesses always slur, you know, flowing right, money all the place. No, you're, you're in LA as well. And how much of the luxury real estate here is owned by Chinese people? It's a lot. It's a lot of basically current Chinese people who are associated with the government who come here and they buy up a lot of real estate here. They buy up a lot of London. So that's the capital flight we're talking about. Yeah. So I actually did yeah. a, a podcast on, on this. I'm actually going to turn it into an article because just, just mm-hmm. for California people, but yeah, the, there's a huge splurge in, in Calif in just foreign real estate. And that ended in 2015, 2016, just all this stuff came down. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, the great thing in, in LA to think about is the Oceanwide Plaza in downtown LA. There's a three building complex right near the Staples Center that was built. It was built by a country, a company called Oceanwide, blah, 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 blah. Basically, they, everything kind of, the rug got pulled out from under that company. And that three building complex has been a unfinished ghost town for two or three years now. Mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. Un, and you can see it right next to the table center. It's, it's half constructed. And they're right, trying to okay, sell it. Summer, yeah. yeah, and it was all, it was marketed to foreign Chinese, uh, well, domestic Chinese who wanted foreign residences. Right, and right. If you go to LA at night, go to downtown LA, and just see how many lights are on around 730, right? It's a good way to see. Maybe that's a, a second a second home, right? Maybe they're just using it to ca- you see, get the capital gains appreciation. Right. So that's a lot of what we we're seeing. Uh, a lot, also around the world, a lot of countries responded to this by creating basically foreign purchase taxes for real estate. Singapore did it. Uh, Vancouver did it. A, lot, a bunch of places did it. Because- foreign purchase taxes are the ad taxes if you're a foreigner? Yeah. Oh, okay. okay. So people in the U.S. have thought about this as well. People are more mm-hmm. concerned with things like housing security, more on the left. Right. They're concerned with, well, are we destabilizing finan- uh, local housing markets yeah. by allowing unlimited foreign uh, access to these markets mm-hmm. with no, with, you know, you know right. I mean? and there's a good argument to made actually, regardless of the policy choice anyone wants to make about whether you want to tax it, it's almost certainly true in major sort of gateway cities for capital, New York, you know, LA, Santa Monica, mm-hmm. San Francisco, really Seattle. This is clear, hundred percent clear. Yeah, hundred percent. Mm-hmm. The question about what you do about it is, is different, but a lot of places like Singapore that are just smaller, right? They can't afford it. So right. they just, they knock it out right away. There's mm-hmm. it's a one it's a city state. So, that's what they did, but we're going to see. I mean, it's also it's totally unrelated, but there's other problems with the housing market around the world, particularly in the U.S., because it's becoming financialized now to such a degree. Right, the whole BlackRock. It's becoming. It's you're mm-hmm. making this market more liquid, but you're also making it less of a natural market, and so there's mm-hmm. a real tension there that isn't being uh, addressed or solved or looked at. And yeah, it's a problem yeah, in makes, China. I mean, makes sense, yeah. In China, yeah. just mm-hmm. just as a little reference for people to keep in mind, roughly speaking, 25% of the Chinese economy is invested in or related to real estate. So, right. Yeah. Shanghai is one of the most expensive real estate markets in the world, if not the most. I think it's in the top three for sure. Oh my God. The the actual, the sort of uh, price to income ratios, I actually just saw it. I can't remember what they are, but they're multiples higher than anything in the right. world. Like something like 30, 40 times the, the income is the, the average house in Shanghai. It's, it's wild. And yeah. the, so in China, I mean, the thing to always keep in mind about China is that this is a very hierarchical state from the top down. And that includes all these cities. So let's say you and I lived in uh, some small city, let's just say like we live in Hangzhou, which is actually a very, very nice city, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. whatever. Uh, there's tiers, there's tier one cities, there's tier two cities, there's tier three cities. And you and I can't just move to Shanghai. Shanghai's closed. It's I now see. off okay. limits. It is basically, this government has said we're full hmm. and you can't move. So there's, there's very, an ancient, very ancient system actually. Back, How do they enforce that? It dates back to the Han Dynasty. They have something called the Hukou system, which is primarily geared towards rural migrants. It basically, okay. there's fl- so flows of people all around China, right? Right. Since, since the ni- 80s, 90s, going to the, go the factories, back to the fields and back and all that. Well, they needed to figure out who was where. And so they basically located, they have a, basically you're registered to where your village is. And they use that to manage what you get. So let's say you I and see. I were, were, were poor laborers in Chinese countryside. We moved to Shanghai 30 mm-hmm. years ago. 
we wouldn't get access to the same resources as, as natural Shanghai residents. We okay. get le less of everything, education, all that, housing. And that's how they do it. They basically, you're, you're rooted to where you are. There's no mobility mm -hmm. in, in China the way we think about. I mean, there is, but it, it's really, especially now that it's industrialized, it's, that era has passed. So ancient China, like the roads in ancient China were imperial roads. You're not allowed to use them like the freeway. The freeway is in the US. You know, it's just random citizens don't just roll down the road. No. Oh, really? No. I didn't know that. Okay. So, so you can't even roads. Well, no, modern China, you can. Oh, modern so, China, you can. Okay. So, yeah, ancient, I'm just trying to say that in, oh, see, historically, transportation infrastructure was the arteries of imperial control. They I were see. not public goods. As they needed to expand, basically, primarily for logistics reason, reasons, to bring goods, assemble parts, all the right. stuff for the manufacturing, they had to build a, a basic thing. But the transportation, people should just be always keep in mind that mobility is not the same in China as it is in the U.S. You can do all these things, but try to, try to have a car in Shanghai, right? So- mm -hmm. There's, I mean, j just as a totally separate note, the Chinese transportation sector is one of the most overbuilt out things on the face of the earth. Just think about it. China has a lot of people. That's fair. But you're building out massive airports, massive rail systems, massive road systems, massive every kind of system possible. Because, I mean, but it, it's like, yes, we'll do everything. But it's like, you're also oversaturating everything. Like, you don't, you know, so mo basically no Chinese rail lines, except for major ones, a couple major cities, make a profit, right? It's purely, at this point, it, in investment for investment's sake. Mm -hmm. And this is one of those areas where it's the level of misallocated capital is just astronomical. And I think people in the US will always look at this and they'll say, well, Jason, we can't build anything. So I'd rather have too many high-speed rail lines rather than precisely zero that costs $80 billion and goes nowhere in California. So there's, that's a really fair argument. But again, it's this question of misallocated capital ever right, since right. China has sort of tapped out this industrial boom. The kind of, Roughly speaking, we're talking the global financial crisis is when all of this, you started to reach the inflection point where China started to keep things moving and keep the engine running. It just started to goose, the, just grease the entire system with credit, like to insane levels. Right, right, right. I mean, more, I mean, you've heard these numbers, but yeah, it's, it's very important. So I always want to get people a sense of that. What's the deal with the ghost towns? Is that, uh, I remember hearing about them uh, like uh, three years ago, I would see these pictures of these entire planned communities that were completely empty with, skyscrapers of residential units is that is that a problem right now yeah so china the real estate sector into all of it runs on a build it and they will come model right okay. that because uh you had to you had to I mean, you, you needed to build so much you had to pray mm -hmm. that it was going to happen and again roughly till 2008 2010 this worked right you people did move into all this stuff roughly speaking but now they're making some investment choices that are just nonsensical. So in Tianjin, there's a major new corporate industrial sort of business district that is totally empty. And the wow. problem with getting a read on these, this ghost town problem, this ghost city problem, this ghost office problem, mm -hmm. is that China is becoming very good these days in almost North Korea style at managing perceptions. So let's right, say you right. hear about a ghost town that's unfilled. Well, watch it fill itself. Mm -hmm. Watch it fill itself mm -hmm. you know, within a year. Yeah, yeah. So like the I thing through the markets. Yeah, it's- yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's what North Korea does. Yeah, I mean, China's much more sophisticated than North Korea, right. much more modern, advanced, and right, right, right. that. But There's no blank computer screens where um, Xi Jinping yeah. is sitting in front of. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But what China is is just very nervous. It's tense, nervous, scared, and it's becoming increasingly rigid and intolerant, right? We're all seeing that mm -hmm. through the Xi Jinping presidency. Right, right. And perception management is becoming enormous there. So you're seeing the parties beginning to infiltrate everything again. So back in the 1970s, you just had... We can't even conceive of this because the party doesn't mean anything to the people in the United States. We're like, oh, what does that mean? Basically, the government is the 
the front and then the party is the government, right? That's, that's one way to think about it. Like right, right, right. you have all these jobs and they're just kind of functionaries and there's party officials that actually make decisions. Mm -hmm. uh, bizarre system, hard to get, it's hard to kind of describe in a couple of words, but right. and basically the way it worked until privatization and sort of westernization you know, opening itself up in the 19, late 1970s, early 80s, is that party officials ran everything. If you and I wanted to go get food down the street, we'd probably be asking a party, we'd probably be using mm -hmm. either credits, quotas, something for party officials, our housing would be given by them, our education would be given by them. Yep. It's just everything. And so part of the process of opening up the country meant opening up, uh, un unwinding this massive tight grip the party had on everything, all these goods that were being provided, services. Mm -hmm. But now that's the party's rolling back into force, right? Because China had just had its 100th anniversary. It has these grand plans to be, you know, number one, top dog, everything. But uh, it, the party wants the credit, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> the party, you can't be behind the scenes anymore. So mm -hmm. you're seeing, I mean, a, a major thing, not, I mean, we could talk about the tech crackdown going on in, with all their major companies, but what's also going on is, you know, Jack Ma, for example, he, he mouthed off. You can't mm -hmm. mouth off in China yeah. anymore. Yeah, yeah. And so you get, you get taken to the back room, probably slapped around a little bit, told what to say, mm -hmm. told not what to say. And right. then, you, you know, then you come out transformed. Yeah, um, yeah. And also across the tech sector, leader, the CEOs are becoming party officials. That's the, cheap, the easiest way to do it. Just become a member of the party, you know, do it. Party uh, cells and committees are being formed across all of these organizations. And yeah, I mean, there's party monitoring and retrieval of information, control of information. All of it is just seeping into everything again. Uh -huh, uh -huh. And people should be aware of this because, I mean, if people have businesses, if people have doing anything in China, this is just becoming a major problem. So right. that- I remember there's a scene in, uh, have you seen the show Chernobyl, the miniseries on HBO? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Do you remember that scene where she, the, uh, she was a nuclear scientist and she was urging that he was just like a fat party official in, in the Soviet Union who was uh, basically in charge of making the decisions for Chernobyl. And she was like, no, this is a major problem. We need to get on it. And he's like, no, I don't think, I don't think it's a major problem. You know, I, this is what, this is what I say. And she was like, well, you were a shoe salesman before, <laughs> but before you had this position. You're only in this position because the party. I'm a nuclear scientist, and I have to listen yeah. to you. And he said, "Yeah, that's how it works." Yeah, that's yeah, kind of the same thing. It is. Yeah. You know, one, one funny thing I was about to mention right before that the the nuclear reactor problem I mentioned earlier in Taishan, southern China. Mm -hmm. It was a state company, but it was a joint venture with a French company. And so what companies right. are seeing is like you're having to deal with these weird party problems. Mm -hmm. This weird shadow bureaucracy in China is now sort of getting in the middle of all of these major transactions, joint ventures, and companies that have joint ventures in the auto industry, whole swaths of the Chinese economy, they're going to start to have a lot more problems with this. And they're probably not going to realize it for a little while until it percolates up, but it's a major problem. One thing I will say, the difference between Chernobyl and China now, the, it's again, hard for the US, the, the, the Communist Party is extraordinarily corrupt and has enormous problems. But roughly speaking, it's actually not that incompetent. Like the, 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 the people are actually well-trained. Um, they're, they're, they're not like bizarre, like, I mean, they do go to bizarre schools. They are learning about Xi Jinping thought and stuff, but they're actually ed educated and they're, they're educated and they're, you know, typically have technical and scientific degrees. Right, right, right. China prides itself on and you know, they're roughly, they're relatively competent. It's not like a total, like you're a shoe, you're a shoe salesman. Like right, you used right, to right. work in the fields and now you're, you know, you're running a, you know, a giant multi-tenant office building in Beijing. Um, no, that's yeah. true. I remember, I remember like six of the seven Politburo members at one point were, had computer science backgrounds and I'm not sure where this is right now. And they have like a huge number. So I, I sort of um, on my show as well, I've, I've mentioned kind of joked about how China is going to kick our ass in certain fields. And, um, but, and it's largely because of the whole, the scale of how many 
scientists they have and computer scientists they have and things of that nature. And that's their advantage. But these are the problems, and a lot of people know those things, but these are the problems, the demography, the uh, resource issue, the um, lack of food issue that no one talks about because they're more long-term challenges, but they're way bigger. They're, they're, they're truly significant. And also, I think we mentioned it, but in regards to, to the energy issue with, with the whole Malacca Strait and stuff. So China's Navy is also a bit overblown. It's great, but arguably Japan's is better, right? And compared to ours, it's like, you know, well, I think we have like 13 aircraft carriers and another 30, what they call amphibious assault ships. And China has two old fashioned aircraft carriers compared to ours. And their ships aren't even that, that great compared to the Japanese. And then they have to go through to get anything they want. They have to go through like 10 different countries. I hate them <laughs> all the way to the other side of the world to get resources or anything they want. So I think that's, that's kind of a big issue as well. They, they can't because they want to be a aggressive hegemonic force. They want to be able to, uh, you know, ideally tell their neighbors to fuck off. Like this is what we're doing. But at the same time, they need all these, they need all these neighbors because they have to pass through them they need these neighbors to buy their goods and they're getting their population is dwindling in size, you know? So it's just, um, their challenges are pretty immense. Yeah, I would, I would wow. definitely agree with that. And I also push back a bit on that tech, you know, China's so many scientists, China's so many tech, uh, mm -hmm. technical wizards that it's going to advance yeah, farther mm -hmm. in the technology sense. Well, actually what we're seeing is that the, the communist party is extremely wary of, of technology that these days, I mean, mm -hmm. what's going on, right. They're, they're, they're clamping down on some of their most innovative companies. And the reason is, mm -hmm. roughly speaking, China no longer sees things like WeChat or Tencent, or Tencent's platform or you know, Alibaba or even Huawei and other these companies. They're, they, they're looking for real technology. So when we were talking about, so we think of technology as information technologies, right? Right. Historically, China thinks of technology as like flood control technologies and transportation technologies. Mm -hmm. That's part of the reason they, they have investment. Like they've had more capital investment in infrastructure in the last 30 years than like the rest of the world for like the last right, four right, right. It's, it's, it's insane. But this focus on, on technology, on actually acquiring technologies from around the world, on trying to basically make China self-sufficient in technology is actually the overriding force in, in Chinese uh, policy right now. It's this attempt at self-sufficiency. Because like you said, Navy's not great. China is, is not an expeditionary Navy that's meant to go around the world, right? right? The US could do that because you know, Mexico and like nothing the U.S. has is related to Mexico and Canada, right? Mm -hmm. Everything China has, believe it or not, the entire Chinese Navy is designed to conquer Taiwan. That's actually what it's for. And that even that rough, I mean, I personally don't think that would succeed, to be honest. Uh, Why do you, so yeah, I was going to ask that. Why do you think, so they, they, they went back on their agreement with England in terms of Hong Kong's autonomy. They took it over, uh, right. was it after 25 years, basically, which they weren't supposed to do. Um, is Taiwan on their, on their radar? Why haven't they gone more aggressive with respect to Taiwan? What do you think the likelihood is that they attempt to take over Taiwan in 10, 20 years? All right. Well, I'm glad you gave the longer time frame instead of like people <laughs> like tomorrow, they yeah. are going to do it tomorrow. No. So yeah, what you said with Hong Kong is correct. So Hong Kong, you know, let's be honest, basically Margaret Thatcher kind of put a poison pill in this whole thing. She's like, ha you have to get Taiwan, but it's a dem democracy now. Taiwan, I mean, sorry, Hong Kong. Hong Kong was right. not a democracy until right. they decided to give it to, 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 Hong, to back yeah. to China. So that's what it is. But what's happening in Hong Kong is pretty horrific. But that also 
poisoned the waters for Taiwan. I mean, peaceful reconciliation mm -hmm. with, with Taiwan. Right. Well, we just saw what happened in Hong Kong. That's yeah. over. So China is very focused on its domestic internal audience, and it has a lot of domestic propaganda. Everything, basically everything you see with uh, fighter pilots and all these you know, things circling around Taiwan, that's mostly domestic propaganda and to kind of like push at other people, right? But mainly okay. the, the domestic audience. Say, so, oh yeah, we're strong, we're strong, we're good. Exactly. Yeah. That's, this is one of the key things people need to understand with China. China spends more on domestic propaganda than external affairs and external foreign relations and diplomacy, any of that. It spends more on internal security than on its foreign military. Like it's, it's enormously concerned with trying to keep the internal Chinese population united together on the mm -hmm. same team. Mm -hmm. And so you always have to piece out, is no. China doing this because it's trying to actually say something to the rest of the world? Or is this doing this because it's for basically its domestic audience? And that's a challenge, but the Taiwan stuff is typically that. But the real question is why haven't they taken Taiwan? Well, the basic reason is because the US Navy ever allowed them to. Mao mm -hmm. would have grabbed 500,000 rowboats and shipping boats and you know, little right, fishing boats mm -hmm. and rolled out to Taiwan if he'd had his way. Yeah. But he could not, right? You, the US Navy prevented it. And that has been the story ever since. And that's been the story basically through the 90s. Even Bill Clinton sort of you know, sailed aircraft carriers through, through the Taiwan Strait. Now we're kind of in a different era, right? So you were referencing sort of the, the US Navy and the Chinese Navy and the relative capacities and stuff. And well, personally, I think that the US sort of naval policy vis-a-vis -vis China is kind of uh, um, totally misguided and sort of a weird Cold War, like we could try and hustle, let's go right up in, um, for example, well, I'll, I'll get back to your question. The, this question about Taiwan, what's going to happen? Is China going to do it in 10 to 20 years? China is almost certainly, if there's one place it wants more than anything else, it's Taiwan. Taiwan mm. would physically make China larger than the United States if it actually controlled Taiwan. It would just cross over like the physical threshold. Right, okay. It would give it access to, to the rest of the Pacific. I mean, it's, it's great. It's also in, it's yeah. just so ingrained Excellent in the domestic propaganda. Well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It gets all this stuff. The problem is that no one has ever tried to do an amphibious invasion of a modern industrial advanced economy mm -hmm. with 30 million people right. and the yeah yeah i mean they could lose up to a third of their their military trying to do this yeah and if the u.s true. got involved like literally all you have to do is mine the taiwan strait because to invade something with amphibious you know amphibious operation you mm -hmm. need to flow ships back and forth forever you're constantly bringing fuel you're bringing more troops you're bringing more supplies because it's not just a one it's not just like hey we got normandy and then we stopped yeah. bringing people in it was like no we have the beach and then you just keep never-ending amount of, of right reasons. right right and yeah and th that is that's what they'd have to do uh, mm -hmm. so basically taiwan is using the exact chinese strategy against china so what china does in the in the western pacific is basically called anti the military calls it anti-access and area denial basically it means prevent the u.s navy from getting near us right and so current u.s policy is like let's make our navy be able to get near them <laughs> mm -hmm. which is which is, makes sense but Basically, China's trying to push the U.S. Navy out, and actually, that's exactly what Taiwan's trying to do to China. So what they are focused on is massive amounts of missiles and basically preventing a continuous invasion. It's actually a much easier thing to do. And if the U.S. wanted, you could sure. give Taiwan an enormous amount of missiles and make it impossible to invade yeah. Taiwan. I mean, you could, I mean, there's all sorts of really cool. sure. things about electronic stuff, and you could, you could do all this, but bloody war. I mean, you know, and this is the, the likelihood that, and the big reason why China hasn't done this, A, if it loses this war, right, or if it gets stymied, or if it gets stuck, right. or looking it seems incredibly like a decisive weak. victory, mm -hmm. oh my god. And the Chinese Communist Party is built on the perception of competence. If right. it looks incompetent, then 
its legitimacy plummets. There, mm-hmm. That is the equation. It's been, well, it looks like the Chinese just got punched in the mouth by a small island. Uh, it's very hard from that. And that's a huge reason why they haven't ever invaded yet. And, you know, that could push them back. I mean, they're, they're, they have timeline, right? They want to do this by, is it 2035 or 2045? It's either the, probably, I mean, at, at, at a minimum 2049, which is the 100th anniversary of the communist revolution. That's when they want all of China united in a glorious, prosperous place. That's for sure. So the U.S., I mean, China's not trying to do this in the next two years. It has no interest. It has way bigger problems. Right, of course. But it does want to slowly develop the, the capabilities. It wants the U.S. to slowly atrophy economically, politically, militarily during this period, and then hopefully get to that point, you know, 10, 15 plus years from now. Hopefully, at the same time, able to somehow integrate China, Taiwan into its system more, into its orbit. But let's be honest. I mean, th- these things are pulling apart really rapidly. So mm-hmm. it is possible something could escalate. But Right now, we're seeing Japan is basically saying, hey, looks like uh, we're going to decide that any kind of attack on Taiwan kind of feels like an attack on the stability of the region. So we might get involved. Right, right, right. And so, Korea, Korea is obviously no joke either. Uh, they're, they're trained by us as well. Yeah. Navies yeah. are tough, man. Navies yeah. are harder. They're more difficult to maintain and they're, they're, than, than anything else. So mm-hmm. it's, it's very difficult. China has never really had a Navy. First Chinese Navy yeah. was actually built to basically patrol the Yangtze in, in the Song Dynasty. But the... Yeah, it's, it's, it's never been able to do it. It's just, mm-hmm. it's too rough. It's too rough a region uh, on, in the maritime sphere. And any attempt to, to, to break out and to, I mean, China is going to probably have to, it starts a domino. Do Taiwan, suddenly you're, you're going to probably have problems with Japan and on right, and on. Right. And yeah, and you, have the all the, you have all sorts of economic sanctions from all your neighbors. Yeah, I mean, a really good point you raised. I, I never really thought about. Uh, and it's, it's one thing I think Westerners have a trouble with is the emphasis on saving face with the Chinese culture. And so even any invasion of Taiwan, best case scenario for them is going to be a drawn out, bloody, uh, fierce battle with missiles coming back and forth. And that alone is is enough to humiliate them, at least in their eyes, uh, with respect to their population. It's not exactly the same with respect to Western liberal democracies right like if it's if something's drawn out uh you know it's not you don't necessarily fear that you know if, if the motives are right uh that uh you know your, your country's gonna overthrow you or anything like that right it's like obviously the vietnam war was very humiliating at parts and bloody and people coming back in coffins and there were there was internal to- turmoil for that but you didn't fear that you know that uh you know the the entire governance of the united states would be upended because of the vietnam war right like so with with china they actually do fear that right yeah again just a a similar situation yeah i mean we trade sort of we we assume our government is stupid and incompetent it's going to mess most things up right right right. rebel at every given moment right we've come to accept it right right Um, yeah china's very different uh and and the big thing that china this face thing is, is important i mean you you need massive uh, perception control. You need to control the entire internet, the perception of the whole war, everything going on. They have to do yep. this whole thing. And then what China really worries about is sort of the, the chain reaction. So suddenly you have a war. Suddenly your energy systems are, are compromised. Suddenly you can't, you can't fertilize or irrigate your right, land. Right. Mm-hmm. It's, it, this is, this is the you story. can't sell your goods. This is yeah. the story also for people want to know, like how do Chinese states fail for, since the last 3,500 years? It is almost always a chain reaction of of things like this. I mean, forget invasions. Invasions were a big one. You know, the barbarians would, would burst through the, the passes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Leaving that aside, 
you had you had agricultural breakdown, you had economic dysfunction, you had political chaos, right? Yeah. What happened? What happens if Xi Jinping dies right now? Boom! While we were talking, he had an aneurysm. Yeah. What we know what that is? That means a battle royale between everyone else at the top. The way that China transitions power is a cute way to think about it. Is basically since the 1970s, they do it through like a blessing and a purge. So basically, a bunch of party elders get together. They mm-hmm. bless one new person to be a leader. Mm-hmm. That new leader decides to purge everyone who could be a rival, mm-hmm. and then you do it again and again. Mm-hmm. Xi Jinping is a much tougher situation, so he's purging nonstop. Right? It's not like a, a one-time purge. It's a perma purge, right? With, with right, right. And what that means is that you have a very flat government structure at the top, and you. It means it means massive chaos if something goes wrong. So that's one thing that we're seeing is it's actually become actually like it's the same thing you were talking about. Like if if Biden died tomorrow, a lot of people probably think that this was planned. But other than that, they would say, well, you know, the next person goes and you move on, right? Right, that's right. What happens. It's there's nothing else in China. It's 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 not like that, and it's so hard for us to to realize that there's massive strength at mm-hmm. the top, but mm-hmm. there's this question of power transitions mm-hmm. is the perennial problem of Chinese states. And there's only been one like, peaceful, easy uh, power transition since 1949. It's actually Hu Jintao, which you referenced earlier. Mm-hmm. Everything else has been a bloody struggle behind the scenes. No, yeah. You know, you have like the old guys, whole cohort is there. And they're not willing to give up power. The new guys like slowly working his way. It's just, uh, it's just pathetic. I mean, it's not pathetic. It's like, it's, it is so foreign to what we know as, mm-hmm. as a political system that we, we assume a lot of strengths where there's actually like fundamental weaknesses that we don't even, we don't even think it's possible really. Cause mm-hmm. we're so, like, like you said, like, like if, if a bunch of people in the government died, you just, the slot fills, you get a new election in a couple of years, la-di-da. Right. Um, it's very, it's very hard to, to, to come back from, but that, that question, you always need to be super competent. And it's very true. Mm-hmm. It's just very true that, yeah. Have you ever seen those, uh, Chinese, um, those, those, uh, what are they called? Uh, they're like the moon cakes that they use for the autumn festival and Chinese. Yeah, I've had some of those. And they're like, they're like seven. They're, it's like a box of like six of them and like the most like immaculate gift wrapping. And they taste like, you know, like a pastry you get at Starbucks or something, but it's like $300 for like six of the cakes. You seen that? I was like some in Hangzhou, but I don't think they, they did not spend that much money on me. Yeah, I, I, I had a call. So, you know, I've had Chinese friends and they would, they would give me one of these like uh, autumn festival or like mooncakes or th- things. And they'd be like from Neiman Marcus or wherever, you know, and it's all about saving face. Like the, the, the actual pastry isn't anything special, tastes like anything else, you know? And, but like, it's in, in the most immaculate gift wrapping you've seen and you give it to, you know, the people that, that you love or who you want to, um, you know, win favor with or whatever it is uh, as, as a good gesture. And, and it's all, it's all, it's all about saving face. It's like so foreign to me. It's like, oh my God, like you spent like 150 bucks for this like box of six pastries, you know? It's, but it, it goes to that whole concept that, that I think we have difficult understanding with how important rituals are and yeah. um, presenting a good image, you know? It's very interesting. Yeah, you know, funny enough, just bringing up rituals, uh, Confucius, Confucianism, all that, which nobody understands, roughly speaking. It just sounds like weird moral preaching from mm-hmm, long mm-hmm. ago, yeah. you know? That Confucius and the Confucians, all of them, they originally called way back in the day, they were called the ritualists, believe it or not. Oh, okay. It was all focused on ritual. It was about how we can use ritual to organize the, the naturally chaotic Chinese system into something socially integrated, functional, and hierarchical. That's what it's about. Mm-hmm. And it goes to, in the modern context, what we see is that all these gift giving, all these culture things, first of all, there's all sorts of just celebratory holidays and all that kind of stuff. But there's also the fact that China is a bit of a low trust society, to say the least. The, there is no, the cultural background that China is, is, is ginning it up right now. You know what I mean? Like in the 19, 
you know, during the Mao era, it was like, get rid of Confucius, get rid of Chinese history, you know, to go back. And then you're right, like, right. what's modern? What's this? It, it's been a tumultuous, like, struggle to try and figure out what do you keep from the past? What do you, what do you, what do you not do? Like, what about your past? Is that region, is it even part of China? Like, yeah. aren't you kind of independent back then? Didn't you have your own culture and your own language? It's, it's a whole thing that's, it, it's, it's very propagandized, like, on the, from the top down. Right, right. And this, this problem of low trust is a, is a real thing in China. And I mean, even what we're talking about with the political system, I think you could argue that the- Is there low trust between people? Would you say that there's low trust? So for example, if you compare the Japanese are like the most, it's fascinating. They're like the most trusting people in I've ever seen in terms of the way their society works, right? They'll be like, they'll be like a, uh, a natural disaster or flood or something. And all the stores will be derelict and, and beat up and, um, and just nothing, you know, nothing gets taken, window right? smash and nothing's taken no one loots no one even like even if they could get away with it no one does anything like no one steals people carry around their own like little like trash cans because there's no you know i mean there's like no trash cans anywhere and they care to like dispose of their own trash like it's such a just uh trusting and like cohesive society is china yeah. not like that no no, okay. Japan is, is very cohesive and integrated and culturally united. And, right. You know, it's Japan, Japanese and Japan, right? You think, oh, the Chinese are in China. China is a mass of many different regions that are only occasionally united. Southern okay. China is they speak different languages. They look different. So people, if you ask any Chinese per- person the difference between people from Southern and Northern China, most mm-hmm. of them can tell you right away. And it, let alone the Uyghurs and the Tibetans and all of this. Right, right, right. There's even the Chinese language, the Chinese, there is no Chinese language, spoken language. There's a Chinese written language that everyone speaks, that everyone uses to write. That's actually uh-huh. the, the primary way that China has been integrated together. The spoken language has, is a mass of a, a massive amount of mutually unintelligible languages. They're called dialects in China. But that's propaganda. Oh, and, really? Okay. Yeah. So the, again, the early Mao era, they did a lot of things to integrate the country. They simplified the Chinese written language to make it easier to write. It used to be like hundreds of strokes, not hundreds, but lots of strokes for each character, each word, mm-hmm. quote, a word. And then they, they started to mandate Mandarin Chinese, which is roughly speaking the Beijing dialect for right. the rest of the country. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I mean, linguistic variation and, and diversity is a sign of typically of, of cultural, economic, political diversity as well. And that's what we see in China. So the, this is not like Japan. Uh, okay. The Sichuan region in China had its own culture for a thousand years before it ever integrated with China. The oh, wow. I mean, Western, I mean, the Yangtze region, it wasn't integrated until after the Han Dynasty. It was about 400 years. It wasn't the same region. I mean, all of it wasn't integrated probably till the 800 AD. Right. Uh, China tried to colonize Vietnam for over a thousand years. Mm. That failed. It's just on and on. There's, There's also like the Manchu people, right? The Manchu, they, I was going to say, had... the Manchu people, mm. that was never part of China until the Manchus took over China. Right, like, right, right. It was like part of the Ming dynasty. It's not really. That, that was mostly, mostly BS. But the, yeah, and so it was the Manchus conquered China and they mm. got Manchuria as well. Mm. But it is... It is not. It is not integrated in the same way, and so that's what that co- what comes out. Like it's not. You don't. You're not going to get trust in regions that have never never talk to each other, don't have mm-hmm. economic connections, don't have real cultural connections outside of a language and a progressively shared history. It is very difficult, and so you've also had a hustle culture in China for 30 years, right? You you, you know hustle, make it big, make it this, make it that. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of lot of scamming, a lot of like, for example, a real estate's a great example. Let's say you and I built a building in Beijing. And we, we built it. And then within a couple months, we could have sold the, the rights, whether in pieces or in whole, to like dozens of different entities. You know, like, boom, it's like, oh, right, we did it. And then like slowly we're like shifted to the side and like all these other people get in the middle of it, right? And then finally you have someone at the end. It's just, you're, you're doing it, but then you're sending it away and sending it away. It, it's, you don't see that in the US yeah, yeah. to that extent. Well, of course, yeah. And, and now, now that you mentioned, I'm reminded of all the uh, Chinese <laughs> scam companies that have gone public. Uh, there, there was... You also had um, what's one of the most prominent ones? Uh, Luckin, 
mm-hmm. right? So look, look, I remember yeah. when buddies was investing in Luckin, and I, I I read into them, and I was like, dude, the the chief marketing officer is currently in jail while going public, and he's still listed as the chief marketing officer, and yeah. it's it just such a uh, pump and dump scheme. And I, I, I assume they're still around, but it, it went bananas because everyone's like, oh, this is a new Chinese Starbucks. And they were like yeah. growing like, I don't know, 20 stores a day or some shit. And I was like, this is not, you they know, don't even they don't, yeah, they don't even like, what's going on here? This is, this is complete bullshit. And then there, there are several of these companies um, where they would, uh, uh, in, in, in the public markets, where they would, they didn't even exist. They would bring the investors over from like Europe and America for their um, shareholders meetings and stuff. And then some of the, I remember Citron Research was one of the people who uncovered a few of these. They're like the famous short sellers. And they left people behind to basically record the factories. And they would see the, these barren factories, like a couple days before the foreigners came in, turn the lights on, put people in there and make it look like it's a real legitimate enterprise. Then they leave and then it's abandoned factory again. So yeah, that, that actually, that makes perfect sense. La- last thing I want to ask you is what do you think about China 2020s? What's it going to look like? Are we going to see, be seeing some of these problems manifest themselves this decade? Is, do you, do you anticipate significant upheavals or tumults or um, changes with respect to their position in the world or internally? Yeah, I think people should get in for a wild ride. I mean, this is, this is going to be really the make it or break it decade. It mm-hmm. really is. The, whether, whether it's the tech side of things, the 2010s was this whole Chinese, we're going to expand, go, you know, go out to the rest of the world, great right. national champions are becoming global champions. And then, yep. well, we see that actually it's closing back. These are now going to be purely Chinese champions. China's trying to pull everything back into mm-hmm. China. And the question is whether this country, like we talked about, with all its massive 600, 600 cities and the enormous industrial base, if all of this can be sustained as it tries to become a, you know, a, a nation of one, right? Like a self-sufficient nation, which it can right. be. The, a lot of things should come to a head uh, this decade. So I always caution people, you don't, you don't want to go, I mean, unless you're trying to short sell or something, you're trying to like make a buck off of this, like go, go for it. Um, but it's hard to know like where, where the, where the hammer is going to fall. Right. You know what I mean? Like the there's, black there's swan a, events. Yeah. It's like, yeah. there's a lot of problems in China, but they're able to keep. So a big thing to keep in mind is that the, the new technological capacity in China, like, like I was saying, it's kind of shifting away from this global, you know, internet platform stuff where it's really right. going is social control right. and surveillance. I mean, mm-hmm. there's mad, like insane innovation, if you want to call it that mm-hmm. going on in this area. And right. it's allowing them to control their population in ways mm-hmm. that have never happened before. Mm-hmm. So, Chinese state falls when the Chinese people typically yeah. break out into rebellion in some form or another. And there are now, there's new capacity to prevent this, mm-hmm. like, like, like China's never, never had really. So the pandemic is a great example. The pandemic response in China was not a public health response. This used, this mobilized the internal security resources that China has been building for over 20 or 30 years. It, 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 it's, well, I have a podcast podcast episode on people really interested, but it's, it's a massive sort of grid system that is locking every neighborhood, every house, every city, every state down into a system of uh, organized and monitored controls, both human, both digital, both algorithmic, both, you know, all of this. Right. And it's, it's unprecedented. And it, this could allow for a lot of things to keep going. I mean, this China could easily keep going, assuming no other challenge in the rest of the world till mm-hmm. 2025 without a problem. But I, I do see you know, by, towards the end of the decade, it seems like it'd be very unlikely if things are able to keep going the way they are. 
will these will this mean like a total breakdown in society right. hard yeah. to know right i mean mm -hmm. the if you can keep if you can keep energy coming into china if you mm -hmm. can keep you know the basic systems functioning agriculture transportation real estate finance etc you're you, know, you can hobble along um but china's also running out of growth so the, the basic thing is that if you're you know if your economy is shrinking population is shrinking your land is kind of dying uh mm -hmm. you're 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 gonna be relying, relying on technology for everything yeah and soon enough you know that comes with the cost right i mean what, what the new technologies can actually lower the cost of so, social control so you think about it as you know if you use surveillance and ai you can lower the per capita cost of like yeah. making someone do what you want them to do right yeah. that's the social credit score that's like i'm going to mm -hmm. give you micro incentives to make you do all of these things i'm giving you a bunch of minor kind of marginal little improvements like a dollar off at the mm -hmm. you know coffee you know a little slightly cheaper plane ticket train ticket whatever but if you you know the idea is you can again Rich yeah, the AI can tell between everybody as well. It's unbelievably sophisticated. It can tell how you walk. Yeah. Um, you know, and if it can distinguish between Chinese people, it can distinguish between anyway, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, so those are all yeah. developed. Those tools yeah. are developed in Xinjiang to control yeah. the Muslim population. Right. Muslim That's right. Population yeah. there. Mm -hmm. And now it's being spread. Matt, not only, okay, let's be real here. This is being spread all throughout China, but it's also being spread to everyone in the West. So they're trying to create profiles right. for basically everyone around the world as well. Right. As, right. as their situation mm -hmm. gets, gets worse, they know that greater, con greater knowledge will help them in, in future mm -hmm. conflicts. So yeah, that's where things are going. And it's not, I wouldn't be very optimistic about things for China. I don't encourage people to go to China much anymore. I per I didn't go the last opportunity I had. I don't feel comfortable. Uh, well, obviously I kind of say this kind of stuff, so I'm probably yeah. less of the yeah. average person, but, <laughs> but, but yeah, it's, it's, you know, we need a, a new story. You know, the United States is betting, investing everything in let's man up to confront China. That's particularly on the right. Mm -hmm. The best way they think to mobilize people to get anything done, right? Right. We got, we got you know, whether it's, you know, we need to go to the moon because China's going to the moon, or we need to improve energy because China's doing this, or we need to get rid of TikTok and make a clone because China did it. Like, it's just on everything because it's the typical pattern from the Cold War. This is the, the Soviet Union was the nemesis, and we, you know, managed to you know, create NASA, go to the moon, all this kind of stuff to combat it. And we're trying to do the same thing, but realistically, we need to find a better, you know, internal narrative, internal mobilizing and motivating force that can move things forward because you're actually going to need the United States by itself self-generating its own you know forward momentum into the future because other countries including china aren't going to do it yeah uh, th i mean that's always a challenge i think it's always one of the one of the things i uh <coughs> i think advantages of of having china's rise if there were any was that hope hopefully it was going to mobilize americans to uh be more united and come together against this adversary um but is it a bit overblown? It, it, it may be, uh, but I, I still think it's it's valuable to not underestimate China because we did before. And oh yeah, for sure. Up, so I, I think it's 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 worth being, uh, you know, overly cautious about everything they do. Particularly, I think with the, the capital markets thing. I'm, that's one of the things I'm going to be very curious about. Is and I. I think we need to be more aggressive in terms of not letting them list on our public markets. I think they're going to, I think on the Chinese side, they're probably going to do that anyways, because they, they seem to be pulling back from the whole international financial community. Um, and I think that's not going to work out well for them. And, it, and honestly, I mean, so many Americans get screwed over by these uh, investments in capital markets for these Chinese companies. It's only through direct investment, but the pension funds invest in them and things of that yeah. nature. So that's one of the things I'm going to be looking for as well. I think that's going to hurt them. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I I think we certainly have much better cards um, and China has a lot of problems that aren't discussed as, a, as we mentioned. 
Uh, but, it, you know, I, I think we still, they're very formidable. They have a lot of brilliant people. Uh, and, and it's worth taking them seriously at the very least. Yeah, definitely. No. I, I wasn't trying to, I actually was going to say, I actually kind of agree with that. The, no. the conservative, not when it gets overblown, but right. the sort of argument that, hey, let's use this as an a, opportunity to kind of get, get our shit together. Yeah. Uh, why not? Because our shit isn't together. Like, right. Anyone that's trying to do anything, it feels like yeah. me. And I, I agree, it's formidable, and you should probably end this easy access stuff that is just allowing basically things to get milked right. from the U.S. Like the DD listing was particularly ridiculous. The um, DD one? Yeah, it's just yeah, like yeah, oh, let's yeah. just uh, get a couple billion. All right, the 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 state re requisitions the money and then moves yeah. on. It's like, yeah, yeah. Are, are we gonna ever call this fraud or anything? <laughs> Whatever. Um, but the problem is like the U.S. What China's been very good at is the U.S. reacts emotionally to very you know painful events. Like we get triggered is a good way to think about it. To use a, a great word, the like nine eleven. We basically got triggered and freaked out. There was no, right. there's no strategic anything. There was no yep. planning anything. And then we missed Bin Laden and then made up some whole thing that we're going to turn this place into a free place. And Pretty, then we yeah, used it twenty years. Turning rock into Belgium, yeah. Yeah, it's ridiculous. <laughs> and that's how we saw it. So China's been trying to do a lot to prevent yeah. one of these blowups, right? So right. Reason, Taiwan or Japan is is try, it's always trying to keep a low profile, although it's no longer doing that anymore. The new ambassador to China is not interested in that. Mm -hmm. it, th those, you know, China's already realized that the U.S. relationship is on the decline permanently, and that's true. Uh, we kind of probably missed the moment to like really end things. We're kind of just going to slowly walk it all back. I think we are right. going to do the financial and capital markets thing that's probably coming. Decoupling, financial, technological decoupling are coming for both sides now. Yeah. Like it's not just the US. Yeah. And uh, that's the world. So, I mean, people should be ready for, like I was saying, it's going to be an interesting ride for sure. Cool. All right, Matt. Well, it's been an uh, amazing discussion. So interesting. I learned so much. Thanks so much for coming on. Where can people find you? Yeah, so check out, I have a, I have a website, just jasoncheftel.com. Uh, I'm writing, I have random things I write. You can go check those out, find them on the website and elsewhere. Uh, I have a, a YouTube channel where I do some things. Right now, it's basically just some live streams. I don't quite have the time to, to do that, but I'm going to do more videos pretty soon. And what else? Oh, for people who are interested in basically the framework to how to kind of think through this stuff, one of the things that I've noticed basically over the last 10 years is that the we're basically losing our journalistic cohort of people. Like the journalist journalists are kind of right. disappearing, like, both blogging and the, real journalists. Yeah. All gone. Right. The, yeah. the, the economic structure doesn't work and the incentives don't work and the ideology stuff doesn't work. Mm -hmm. So if you want to understand international affairs and stuff, you kind of need to develop a framework. So as I've been doing all these podcasts, I've been getting the same sort of answzers and questions and I've been putting together some basic stuff about why countries are the way they are. And mm -hmm. basically for I don't know, people who reach now, it's going to just be a free course at the beginning and it'll just be, you know, like we've been talking about, why does the country have as many people as it does? Why does it have persistent military conflict or not? Why does it develop this type of military? Why does it develop this sort of culture? Like it, it's real that, you know, Mexicans are Mexicans and there's stereotypes are often caricatures, but there's also some kernel of truth and all these things. Germans right. are very precise. Mm -hmm, this, mm -hmm. Anyone who's gone yeah. around the world, that is true. And we want to get an understanding of why these things are the way they are. So we don't walk through, we don't just get, just we're like a leaf in the wind, like during a storm because no one's ever telling us what's really going on. So right. that's cool. So anyone could, I don't email, email me or get on the mailing list, check that out. But otherwise, uh, yeah, it goes to most of the places. Very cool. Okay. I will put your website in the show notes so uh, people can check you out. Oh, and the podcast. I do have the China right. Unraveled podcast. Okay. I'll, I'll put that in there as well. Awesome. All right, man. Thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, no, it was great. If you enjoyed our show, please click subscribe to stay up to date with our YouTube channel and podcast and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts so that we can keep delivering guys some great content. Thanks again, and we will be back next week. Oh, man. And probably sex robots. We stand for a free and open debate and exchange of ideas. And if you disagree with anything we talk about, you are a racist and no better than Hitler. What? Let's get started.